0: Father, I want to thank you for the hardness of this passage, the frankness, the bluntness. Wake us up with it. Use it to wean us off a love for the world and its attractions. Use it to make us dependent on Christ and his benefits. Reveal to us through this text our senseless pursuits and put us on a gospel path. Where we run hard after eternal things, not superficial things. Where we pursue Christ, not fleeting substitutes. Let the weeds that grow in our soul be cut at their roots and gospel flowers be planted in their place. Do the gardening soul work we so desperately need. Take us to new depths in our repentance. And new heights in our awe of forgiveness. Father. Show us Christ. For if we do not encounter him in this text. We will not be sustained. We need the sustaining Christ. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Sin. Wants to be invisible. Invisible. But God wants it exposed. King David on his palace rooftop catches a glimpse of a curvy silhouette bathing on another rooftop. He watches long. Too long. David opened the door and sin crept into his heart. It settled there. Sin is always found reclining in a dark, chilly heart. King David becomes the royal voyeur. He commits adultery right there in his heart, according to Jesus. He's a heart adulterer long before he was a body adulterer. Oh, David, oh, colossal king, able to conquer the world, but unable to resist temptation. David asked a palace staffer, who is that woman? The staffer answered, and and by doing that, he, he gave him verbal warnings. She is the daughter of. He wasn't listening. Sin can be more stupefying than liquor. He calls for her, he has her, he sends her home. David, you're not just enjoying someone's body, you're tampering with her soul and yours. Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant. If people found out, David would lose faith and possibly his life. This sin did carry with it the death penalty in Israel. David sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who also happens to be one of David's elite soldiers. David pulls him from the front lines of Israel's battle with the Ammonites. David attempts to trick Uriah into going home and having a conjugal visit with his wife. An attempt to pawn the baby off on someone else. But Uriah refused. Because soldiers in combat generally practice sexual abstinence. Intercourse was a source of ritual impurity and was avoided during military campaigns. David has many more tricks up his sleeve. But none of them work. The point of the narrative is for you to see that David has gone full-blown damage control. Operation cover-up is in full effect. David is only concerned with self-preservation. Anything to conceal my sin. David eventually sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter. Give this letter to General Joab. What's in the letter? What did he write? Murder, he wrote. Uriah died by David's death warrant. David let Bathsheba mourn for seven days and then took her as his wife, a move that would have been viewed as compassionate and caring, stepping in to rescue the wife of a fallen soldier. It's hid. David's sin is hidden. It's swept under the rug, it's stuffed in the closet. He's got blood on his hands, but somehow he's not caught red-handed. The vast majority assume this new baby was the product of their new marriage, not David's infidelity. If you were powerful enough to cover up your crimes, would you do the same things? That was last week. That was chapter 11. We are now studying chapter 12. About a year has elapsed since the wedding day. But time can't erase the memory of that tragic event. And time certainly can't cleanse the conscience or erase the sin. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's stop here for a moment. In the previous chapter, for the past year, David has been doing all the sending. In fact, the most common word in chapter 11 is sent. David sent Joab to battle when he should have gone himself. David sent and inquired about the woman on the roof when he should have turned away. David sent men to bring Bathsheba to him even though he had a harem full of women in the palace. David sent word to Joab to send Uriah off the battlefield. David wrote Uriah's death warrant and sent it to the front lines. David sent and brought Bathsheba to be his wife repeatedly over the last year. David is doing the sending. David thinks he's in control of this situation. He's the sender. He's sending people. He's sending commands. He's sending letters. But here he finds out God's the ultimate sender. He's controlling this narrative. God sent a prophet. His name, Nathan. Prophets in the Old Testament had the unenviable task of bringing bad news to powerful people. You wouldn't want the job of a prophet. No sane person would ever volunteer to do this. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. To use language more familiar to you, here's what we have. David, the king of Israel, Nathan, the pastor of Israel. God speaks to the pastor of Israel and he says, go to the king of Israel and uncover his hidden sin. This is not easy. This could be fatal. This is quite a hairy situation. Nathan decides to go with a parable. He tells David an Old Testament parable. Now, to be clear, David doesn't know it's a parable. David thinks it's a real situation. This whole scene would have been a normal event that happened on the daily. The king of Israel was the judge for all cases in Israel. He was the judicial and executive branch rolled into one. People would bring cases and he would rule on them. David thinks this is another case. He's fully invested in hearing the details of this matter. Also, He and Nathan are really good friends. This is the second time in 2 Samuel we've seen them together. David expects nothing. He's with a friend. Nathan says, David, there are two men in the same town. The one rich, the other poor. The one lives in a big three-story house, 8,000 square feet. And the other lives in a little shed where the roof leaks and the critters crawl in and out. Verse 2. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like... It was like a daughter to him. See, the rich man is a cattle farmer. He's got so many head of cattle, he can't even count them. He's got all types of livestock sheep, goats, donkeys, horses, camels. His barns are full. The poor man lives in a barn, less than a barn, a little feeding shed. And he's stuffed in there with at least two of his kids. His wife must have died. He's raising these children in poverty. Anyway, he only has one little ewe lamb. He's not fattening the little girl up so he can eat her later. She's a pet. He calls her little lammy. king. This poor man loves little lammy. I mean, this lamb eats off his plate, drinks from his glass, sleeps with him in the hay, frolics around with the kids. This you lamb is like a daughter to him, king. The word daughter in the Hebrew is bath. As in Bathsheba. Same prefix in both words. Both words begin the same. David is not picking up on this. He's not clued in. He's missing the verbal cues. It's a thinly disguised parable. Little Lamy is clearly a pet. And and you know my personality and my feeling towards animals, so, you know, I don't like this verse. (laughs) This little lamb, he's clearly a pet, eating off the poor man's plate, drinking from his cup. Would you let your dog do that? Your cat would do it without asking. (laughs) And then he would demand refills. (laughs) This poor man and this lamb are inseparable. They take Christmas pictures together, dress up in matching outfits. They are linked by love. She's like a daughter to him. It's his bath. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Hospitality was very important in the ancient Near East. A person could take a neighbor's sheep and slaughter it for food to feed incoming guests. But you couldn't take your neighbor's lamb if you had your own or if it was a pet. This rich man could have slaughtered one of his own head of cattle or a goat or one of his many lambs instead of... Instead, this this greedy penny pincher is too stingy to take one from his own flock. So he goes across town to the poor man's shed. The kids are in the yard playing with the lamb, chasing her and having her chase them. It's a yard full of laughs. The rich man walks into the yard. His imposing figure makes the children cower. He grabs the lamb by the neck and he starts to walk away. The children are screaming, crying. Look, little lammy, dad, he's taking little lammy. The dad rushes out and tries to stop him, but he's overpowered. He's pushed to the ground right in front of his children. Little lammy was noisy, so the rich man sliced her throat right there in front of the entire family. They will never be able to unsee that. The yard full of laughs. Turned into a yard full of tears. The rich man went on to serve his guest. Roast lamb. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. David is visibly angered by this situation. The very thought of a rich man in his kingdom taking advantage of a poor man in his kingdom enraged him. This man needs to be shot, hung, beheaded. Notice the superlative in the sentence, David is greatly angered. He's burning with anger, seething mad, flaring hot. David's outraged by such callous cruelty. What a mean and heartless individual this rich man is refusing to liquidate less than 1% of his assets and choosing instead to steal a family's prized pet. What an abuse of power. Here's my ruling, Nathan. Listen carefully. The rich man dies. You hear me? I I want blood to pour from his body like it poured from the neck of little Lammy, And before he dies... He restores the poor man fourfold what he stole. Verse 6. And he shall restore to the lamb, he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. A fourfold restitution was the law. Exodus 22.1 1 says, if you steal a sheep, you must repay fourfold. Zacchaeus did this in the New Testament. It was a, it was a feature of the law. This ruling had legal background. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. King, you're the rich man. King, you stole the daughter. You stole Bathsheba. The rhetorical trap snapped shut. This parable was a mirror Nathan held up to show David how dirty he was. God used Nathan's tongue as a scalpel. It was within an inch of David's soul before David even knew what was happening. Nathan is not holding a sword to kill, but a scalpel to cut out the diseased tissue in David's soul. As we walk through the text verse by verse, I'm going to do a a bit of applicational reign. Just drop it throughout. It begins now. Have you ever noticed our sins look worse on other people? Nathan told the parable and David bit and even pronounced a ruling on it. He condemned himself to death out of his own mouth. However, David's moral outrage is conflicted. He's showing an inordinate amount of anger for lamb stealing. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in Israel's law book is lamb stealing punishable by death. It's not a capital offense. David is more angry than he should be. He's a judge giving too harsh of a punishment. It's over the top, above and beyond the judicial sentence for theft. But is this not so natural? He's indignant at those sins When those sins are imputed on another person, those sins look horrible when someone else does them, and not as bad when he does them. David abused his power by taking the daughter Bathsheba, and the rich man in the parable abused his power by taking the daughter Eulam. However, the rich man in the parable didn't kill a person, he only killed a lamb. David actually killed a person, Uriah. David, you're the rich man. But much, much, much worse. You're supposed to shepherd my people, but instead you are slaughtering them. You are not a shepherd king. You are a king like the other nations. See, we go on bizarre moralistic crusades When we are in sin. We go on bizarre moralistic crusades when we are in sin. It's not unusual for us to be enraged by the sin of others. While our own hearts are hardened and unrepentant. David wants to be a champion of justice. And deep down it's rooted in his own injustice. Robert Alter, who used to teach at Berkeley and is an expert in Hebrew literature, points out that your guilt makes you unusually upright in other areas of life. It's something in you that tends to overcompensate for your own sin. Like somehow coming down hard on other sins will pardon your hidden sin. Now, what are some blindly obvious but common ways we do this? Don't feed yourself the lie that you're against sex trafficking and then you watch pornography. You are creating the market for trafficking. You're the man. I'm against racial inequality, but you're for abortion? I'm against global warming. But I'll remain silent on this country over here that burns people alive. Look look at what she's wearing. But you're flirting with and texting someone at the gym. Jesus said it clearly in Matthew 7. Get the light pole out of your eye before you get the splinter out of someone else's. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. (laughs) David, David, do you remember where I found you in that backwater town of Bethlehem? You were a shepherd boy and I wanted a shepherd king. I brought you to the palace and when things got hard, I freed you from the claws of Saul. Nathan is giving David God's word. It's it's Nathan speaking, but it's God's word. God begins itemizing his grace to David, verse 8. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, you killed Uriah, but not with your own sword. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now let's think back. Uriah actually died by arrow, not by sword. But when you die in war, the common expression is you die by sword. It was a general term for a violent death, not a specific mode of death. David, you've despised the Lord. Sin, at its root, is despising the Lord. God is the fundamentally offended party. David is beginning to understand the depths of which his sin offended a holy God. Verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you. Out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. For the rest of his life, David will experience one tragedy after another. Poetic justice, if you like. You killed with the sword, so the sword will never depart from your house. That happened. David will have four sons experience premature death. Almost like a fourfold restitution. Because you took Uriah's wife, I will take your wives. David's wives will be given to his neighbor, his son Absalom. This will be fulfilled in the, the Israeli civil war. What you did in the dark, in the moonlight, I'll do in the daylight. God's word to David may seem harsh, but it is persevering language. These are harsh judgments, but they are also judgments of charity. If you're left without discipline, you're not sons and daughters. If you're left without discipline, you are not sons and daughters. The Lord will not leave his children in sin. He will lead them to confession. He will lead them to repentance. The Lord's discipline is just and it can be severe, but it is for our good. Don't buck at the Lord's discipline. Bow before it. Christian, God loves you so much, he will not leave you in your sin. He will not allow you to wallow in the mud. He will lead you to showers of grace. Stephen Davy says, and I quote, The children of God are never completely comfortable with sin. To which we reply, praise God. God will bring the callous and brute to his knees. And when he does, we will sing. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. As Francis Thompson testified, the hound of heaven pursues us. He's breathing down David's neck as we speak. R.T. Kendall reminds us that chastening is not God's getting even. God got even at the cross. God's chastening is not meted out in proportion to our sins, but meted out in proportion to the lesson we have to learn. God's word came to David. God's word does not flatter us. It humbles us. And there is no end to sinning until there is conviction by the word of God. Everybody sins. It's what you do after you sin that determines life and death. When our sin is exposed, we have four options. Option one, hide it. If you hide your sin, you are putting your reputation above your holiness, which is what David did in chapter 11. Sin wants to be invisible, but God wants it exposed. Is there something that you're hoping never gets out? An act you're hoping never gets discovered? Is there evidence somewhere you're hoping never surfaces? Are you hiding something from God and others? Is it a business practice God would never honor? Is it a relationship you shouldn't have? A test score you didn't deserve? Is it a reimbursement check you shouldn't cash? Is it a degree you never earned? An award you didn't merit? A resume you didn't completely tell the truth? Is it something from the past you've never admitted? Is it something like David that steals your joy and your sleep and your sweet communion with God? Because deep down, you know that God knows. When sin is exposed, we have four options. Option one is to hide it. Option two is to rationalize it. (laughs) Do you only admit sin in the most superficial ways? Well, I I had to do it. I had no other options. Do you do mental gymnastics to rationalize your sin? Denial isn't just a river in Egypt. (laughs) You have three options. Hide. Hide your sin. Option two, rationalize your sin. Option three, blame shift. Well, You don't know what I've been through. You have no idea how much pressure I am under. Let me tell you about what I went through as a child. Or, it was because I was with the wrong crowd. No, you are the wrong crowd. You are responsible. You are the man. The fourth option. Repent. Repent. Acknowledge the full extent of your sin. And then throw yourself on the mercy of God. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. Verse 13. David said to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David. The Lord also. Has put away your sin. You shall not die. David doesn't try to negotiate. There's no demand for leniency. No excuses of all oh, Bathsheba's revealing clothing. Or excuses of a middle age crisis. No cloaking. No lessening the gravity of his sin. No searching for loopholes. He acknowledged his guilt Openly, candidly, and without hesitation. I'm a transgressor. I'm a rebel. I am guilty of iniquity. David appeals to the only ground that will not crumble. The ground of God's mercy. David is utterly submissive to the accusing word of God. He's thoroughly and truly, broken. I'm guilty as charged. I'm a miserable offender. I didn't just commit adultery. I am the type of person who commits adultery. I acted out all the things that were already present in my heart. I have sinned. In those three words, the heart rises to God. I repent is a phrase full of hope. Those are the only words that can bring relief to a tortured soul. Church family, do not dread repentance, love repentance. View repentance as a gift from God. There's immense relief that floods the soul when you repent. You don't need to fear being exposed. You need to fear ceasing to repent. And I know some of you very well. I just want to talk to you directly. Repentance is better than suicide. Repentance is better than suicide. Stop running from this. Confess, confess, confess. Kyle, I'll die if it's exposed. If it's exposed, my life is over. That's the serpent whispering in your ear. What David experienced... And what some of you are experiencing. What David is experiencing here is conviction of sin. Once he confesses, God forgives. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I want you to see. The sweetness of forgiveness. David's sin has been put away. God says, I do not hold you liable for your sin. David's sin is forgiven without him making a sacrifice. God will not despise brokenheartedness over sin. Putting away your sin means that you will not bear the ultimate penalty for it. God put David's sin on Jesus at Calvary. And has the church lost the awe of forgiveness? Ralph Davis says we have by and large a a vending machine view of forgiveness rather than a miracle view. We, we, we pop in our, our penitence token and out comes the assurance of pardon. Dear one, Christ had to die on the cross for you to hear. I put away your sin. Does forgiveness still leave goosebumps on your soul? Now, I want to give you a statement and then I want to unpack it. I'll give it and then unpack it. The scandal of grace is that it sometimes makes us uncomfortable when others receive it. I have a little Pharisee in me. It's not a surprise to some of you. I have a little Pharisee in me. So when I hear God say to David, I put away your sins, I think, that's not right. (laughs) Suddenly, everything is okay. People died. Not just Uriah, but other soldiers died with Uriah. David's sin killed many men, ruined the lives of many people. He abused his power and took advantage of Bathsheba. It shouldn't be this easy. He should have to work harder for his forgiveness. It should take longer. I'm uncomfortable with the brevity of his repentance. It's short. It should be wordier. Here's what I'm hesitant to admit to you. God's grace is, unco- is as uncomfortable. God's grace is uncomfortable as it is deep. God's grace is uncomfortable as it is deep. God went on and blessed the marriage of David and Bathsheba. If I were God, I would not have done that. But then again, if I were God, none of you would have received grace. David is welcomed by grace. Few have sinned as egregiously as David, adultery and murder. Yet he didn't out God's forgiveness. We have a finite number of ways to sin. God has an infinite number of ways to forgive. I marvel at this God because he assures repentant sinners of his constant love. I put away your sin. You shall not die. David deserves death because he committed two capital crimes, adultery and murder. He will not receive death, however. He shall not die. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David, since you treated me lightly the child Bathsheba just bore, the child he tried to pawn off on Uriah, this child is doomed to die. You deserve to die, but your son is going to die instead. The child will die vicariously for David. Beloved, pick up on this. David's son will die in his place. You will live because he will die. It's as if David's child is his substitute. Usually I wait to get to Christ, but I cannot contain myself. This is a foreshadowing, this is a preview. The son of David will one day die for David's sins. This son in our text, this son is the shadow. Jesus Christ is the reality. The son of David died for us. He died vicariously as us. We can look ahead. We can see the good news. We can see the gospel in this. David could not. David is broken. David's newborn baby will die. So we need to sit with David as he processes this. And we need to remind ourselves... That forgiveness does not erase the consequences of our sin. The sin can be completely forgiven. Yet there are ongoing consequences. Gordon Ketty, a Scottish theologian says, Our sins, like nuclear explosions, have a kind of fallout which may continue for some time. And even impose permanent effects. There's aftermath. A rippling effect that invades people's lives. David's sin has invaded the life of his newborn infant. Hear me. God forgives the guilt of sin. But inflicts the consequences of sin. Repentance is like fetching a stone back... That you threw into the water. The the stone can be retrieved, but the ripples go on spreading. There is a, a rippling effect of sin. Even forgiven sin. David's sin is completely forgiven. Yet he's still bearing the consequences. And beloved, you may still deal with the rippling effects of your sin. After God has put it away. This could come in the form of an STD. Or alternating having your kids on the weekends. Or broken relationships because of previous lies. This can play out in a million ways. But you need to preach the gospel to yourself. That just because you experience consequences for your sin. It doesn't somehow mean it's unforgiven. Verse 15, then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. The child fell gravely ill. We don't know if this was a congenital heart defect, some infection. It was horrible and sad, whatever it was. Notice the narrator does not hesitate to attribute the child's sickness To God. Verse 16. David therefore sought God. On behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in. And lay all night on the ground. I'm sure David prayed. God the the baby didn't do anything. I did. Kill me God. Not the baby. It's interesting. The severe judgment. Inflicted by God. God did not make God unapproachable as far as David was concerned. Verse 17. And the elders of his house stood beside David to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Now let's picture this. David's lost 30 pounds. He's not eating. He's mourning the child's sickness. He's begging God to let the boy live. The palace staff attempts to get David off the floor, but David refuses to budge. He's so sick with grief, he will not get up. He's not getting off that floor until God heals his boy. Verse 18. On the seventh day, what? The child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Some scholars believe the baby died seven days after birth. That's why we don't have a name. The child would be named and circumcised on the eighth day. That's possible. I lean toward the baby being weeks old when God struck him with an illness. The the baby must have been receiving medical attention from the palace doctors. David is in another room praying and interceding for for the child. When, When the doctor looked at the palace staff and shook his head, they knew the baby died. The doctor covers the child with a white sheet the men enter david's prayer room and have a conversation while they're watching him pray when we tell him he's going to lose it he's going to go crazy go crazy he's already gone crazy and he doesn't even know the child is dead we're we're, we're going to need a room with padded walls Maybe. We need to tell them. And then put them on suicide watch. Verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together. David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants. Is the child dead? They said. He is dead. Six times in two verses, the child is dead. It seems like the narrator could be a little gentler. No matter who you are, you are going to have floor suffering. There will be moments where you can't get up. You don't want to get up. People will begin to question if you're going to make it through this. Maybe the consequences of your sin brought you to the floor. Maybe others' sin against you brought you to the floor. Maybe it was a health crisis. We will all have moments where we experience floor suffering. Now, regarding David, I'm expecting some primeval scream. Pulling his hair out, punching walls, throwing goblets, flipping tables... David, your infant child is dead. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went into his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. He's been on the ground for seven days and now suddenly he gets up takes a shower, he needed one, brushes his teeth, puts on deodorant, and then leaves his palace and walks a short distance to the tabernacle. He goes in and he worships the Lord. He worships the Lord who just told him no. Save my infant. No. After worshiping the God who gives life and takes it away, David walks back to the palace. He's greeted at the entrance by his staff, who, who then sits down for a meal and they have questions. They have lots of questions. Verse 21 Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? They are confused. Normal cultural practices would be to mourn after the child died. Not before the child dies. King, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're mourning at the wrong time. You have it backwards. Now is actually the time you're supposed to take off the kingly robe, put ashes on your head and fast. Verse 22, David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said... Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, David says, I I knew it was just if God took my baby. How can I rail against a holy God? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God in his wisdom said no and I will rest in God's will. Not my own. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond when God says no? No, I will not give you biological children. No, the cancer will not go away. No, your child will not come back from the far country. No, you will not get that job, move to that state, be close to your family. No, your child will not live. Some of you have lost a child this year. I've been praying for you. I know it's been hard. It's been terrible. It's a staggering number of women in our church who have lost a child through miscarriage. Ladies, I will weep with you on the floor. I will cry with you. I will beat the ground with you. But I cannot give give you an excuse to rail against a holy God. How do you respond to God's no? Learn from David, he did not harbor resentment in his soul. It is sin. It is sin to be angry at God. It is sin. If God didn't give you a baby, or took your baby, or took your mother, and your father, The circumstances don't matter. If you harbor resentment in your heart at God, beloved, it is sin. And I'm afraid, pastors, we, we, in our attempt to comfort people, we are okaying their sin. There is never a time in which you are mad at God and it is not a cosmic gross disgusting sin we have okayed people being bitter at god and the bible never does there there is never a situation no matter how horrible that it warrants your madness at god i heard rc sproul recount hearing a minister speak to a A heartbroken family making this statement. God is never in death. God is never in sickness. God is never in tragedy. As R.C. pointed out, that would simply be inconsistent with this scripture. It attributes the child's death to God. You find rest not in that God's hand is never hard, but that God's hand is always present. Now allow me to answer some questions pastorally and theologically for you. Here's the first question. If my child died, is God punishing me? If my child died, is God punishing me? I can say firmly here, that's not what you need to come away with from this passage. It is wrong to generalize and say the death of every child is like the death of this child in our text. Jesus didn't like that. When some of his followers asked, hey, there's a a blind man, who sinned, he or his parents? Jesus said that sickness wasn't the result of sin. You don't know God's purposes in a particular event other than to make you, like David, go to the house of the Lord and worship. Another question. What happened to this child and my child that died? What happened to this child and my child that died? Let's talk about David's child first. David said, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Some scholars say this is David coming to terms with his own mortality. David is saying the child will not come back to life, but David will go to death. That could be. He's just talking about death. However, I think it's more. I think he is saying, I will be with my child. Some type of reunion language is being used. Tim Keller says David received a special word from the Lord that he would be with his child. And I lean toward that interpretation as well. That's David's child, now, now your child. David entrusted the fate of the dead child completely to the hands of a sovereign and merciful God. You do the same. When children die in infancy, they are spared from a fallen world. When we approach something like this in Scripture, when things are not clear, we must go to what is clear. God's character. If you can trust God to save your soul, you can trust Him with the loss of a child. He, more than anyone, knows what it's like to watch a child die. The purpose of this text is is really not to figure out what happens to children after they die. Do they go to heaven? The elders of this church did a panel on this. And and we just sent it out um, last year just to church members. We do do discussions like that and we only send it to, to members. But for that video, and for that video only, we will send it to whoever wants it. We, we, we talked about the subject in depth. We, we gave three articles on the, on the topic. One by Al Mohler and, and Danny Aiken, who said that all those who die in infancy are elect and therefore are in heaven. Matthew Henry said godly parents have great reason to hope concerning their children that die in infancy. That it is well with their souls in the other world. We talked about that. We, we talked about Sproul's view and where we all fell on that. Notice verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Stop here. By calling her the wife of David, the text gives legitimacy to the marriage. For the first time in the narrative, Bathsheba is called David's wife. Something changed in God's view of this marriage. God is blessing this union. How could this marriage possibly be blessed? Well, in the same way yours can. Some of you were sexually active with your spouse before marriage. Some of you were the other man or woman that broke up a marriage. And now you're married to each other. How can God bless David's marriage and yours? It's simple, really. God, put away your sin. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon is the fourth son born to David and Bathsheba. But the narrative is compressed here. It skips over other sons in order to carry the narrative to its thematic end. This is the son who will rule after David. Sit on David's throne and be in the line from which the Messiah comes. His name is Solomon. And Jedediah. Solomon is the public name. Jedediah is the private name. Solomon is the throne name. Jedediah is the family name. Two names for one son. But as we look at the chapter, there are two sons. The unnamed son and the named son. The dead son and the living son. The, The son Yahweh struck, verse 15, And the son Yahweh loves, verse 24. Chapter 12 ends with a war report. It gives you the details of what happened in the war that started all the way back in in chapter 11. Chapter 12 ends where chapter 11 began. The siege of Rabbah. This is the the narrator's way of putting a nice tidy bow on this section. David, you'll find out in the text, he, he forces the Ammonite people into labor camps. They work with the picks and axe, hewing stones and moving blocks. David snatches their crown and puts it on his head. And, and according to 1 Chronicles 20, this crown, this Ammonite crown weighed 75 pounds. That's a big crown. It was meant to, to be a show, more, more of a show than to walk around the palace wearing. But what I want you to see is at the end of the chapter, you see David wearing a ca- crown. He's a king. Chapter 11 and chapter 12 are one unit. They are meant to go together, and you see that in a chiastic structure. I've given you a lot. I'm a little afraid this chart's going to overwhelm you. But let's, let's, let's take a stab at it. The first A, David sends Joab to besiege Rabbah. That was all the way back in chapter 11, verse 1. Notice the second A, David hears that Joab besieged Rabbah. The end of chapter 12. Uh, The first B, David sleeps with Bathsheba, who becomes pregnant. The second B, David sleeps with Bathsheba, who becomes pregnant. You got both of those events in, in, in both chapters. The first C, David has Uriah killed. The second C, God has a child killed. The first D, Joab sends David a messenger. The second D, God sends David a messenger. And the center here, this is called a chiasm, the center is the emphasis. The Lord is displeased with David. The chiastic structure is filled with David's sin. But the chiastic structure is covered in Christ's blood. Some closing pleas here. Three of them. Three pleas. Plea number one be a Nathan and go get some Nathans. Be a Nathan and go get some Nathans. By remaining quiet, David gave Nathan the ability to rebuke him openly and freely. When you are approached with your sin, do you repent or rage? We need Nathans in our lives. Someone who will say the hard things to us. The church is a bunch of Nathans helping one another see the sins they don't see. If you don't want a Nathan in your life, this is not a good church for you. Find another one. Because we are committed to this. 2 Samuel 12 is the Old Testament version of church discipline. And a lot of people don't like that. That's why they take themselves out from the leadership and the accountability of the local church. It's autonomy they want. Freedom from authority. No Nathan is going to call out my sin. Well, who is going to confront your manipulative and abusive ways? By the way, you must give Nathans a hunting license. Give them a green light. Look them in the eye and say, if you see anything in my life that is inconsistent with the gospel, please call me out on it. Get some Nathans and be a Nathan. Kyle, you want me to be a Nathan? Well, that could be awkward. I just want to talk about it with other people and not talk about it with them. How much do you have to hate someone? how much do you have to hate someone to know that they are in sin but just choose to ignore it? You're not a Nathan. You're not a good friend. And if you continue in that behavior, beloved, I must confess, I'm not sure you're even a Christian. Do not say you love someone while ignoring their sinful lifestyle. That's plea number one. Just just be a Nathan and find some Nathans. Plea number two. Go out and find some Nathans, but don't ever forget that God gave you the divine Nathan. Go out and find some Nathans, but don't ever forget God gave you the divine Nathan. You, you might wonder, as I did, how David could have lived with this sin for nine months, 12 months, maybe 24 months without ever confessing it. Remember, David didn't have the Holy Spirit. You do. Now, to be clear, there are no excuses for David's sin, period. But the work of the Holy Spirit has changed. The Spirit came on Old Testament believers and went. The Spirit indwells New Testament believers and stays. My wife read a book on this recently entitled God's Indwelling Presence, The Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments. It's written by James Hamilton. There is no reason for you to go this long in your sin. Because you have the divine Nathan calling you out. God has fitted you with an alarm system. The Holy Spirit is your Nathan. And when he shows you sin, you must respond like David. Repent. Plea number three is the last one. You need to follow a king who doesn't kill a lamb, but dies as a lamb. You need to follow a king who doesn't kill a lamb but dies as a lamb. (laughs) David was the rich man in the parable. David was a failed shepherd. He killed the lamb. Jesus is the faithful shepherd. He came to die as a lamb. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Non-Christians, you need Christ you need this lamb. Repent and believe on Christ. Submit to his lambship and his lordship. Oh, oh, well, Kyle. I, Kyle, I don't know if I can live the Christian life. You can't. Under your own power. How do you change your desires for sin? The gospel. It creates in you a new heart new affections, new desires, and it kills the old ones. This is the power of the gospel. The ability to do right and obey the law just wells up in you. We will close today with David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Let's go to our gracious and forgiving God. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now Father, those are David's words. But that's our heart. And we only add these words to David's. Lord, we repent Of our repentance. Even our repentance. Needs to be washed. In the blood of Christ. Amen. Would you stand together?